This morning we are going to look at Philippians chapter uh, 4, verses 4 and 5. Uh, next time we will look at, next time we're back in Philippians, we'll look at uh, prayer. So I wanted to, to spend uh, one sermon on, on prayer, and so that's why we're dividing this section like this. Uh, but today we'll look at verses 4 and 5. I'd like to begin the reading in verse 2, and like I would like to read all the way through verse 7. So... Uh, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, 2. Beloved, before we hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we look forward to the day when the curse is finally and forever removed. The curse on which this earth groans in which our bodies groan and our souls as we continue to fight against the old man and as we continue as your people to fight against the temptations of the devil and the flesh. And so we look forward to that day, O Father, and we pray as we sojourn in this age, contending with the curse that has come upon man and all of creation, we pray, Father, that you would give us grace, that we might rejoice in the Lord, knowing that he's secured for us an eternal salvation, that he is with us by his spirit, guiding us and helping us in all of our struggles. We sing of the bleeding lamb today, and we give glory to our Savior, for he has covered over all of our sins, and he gives us his word that we might feed on him, that we might be renewed and strengthened until the curse is finally removed. And so we pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of the gospel this morning to the praise of your glorious grace in Jesus Christ. For we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Beloved, this is the word of God. I entreat Udia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Paul needed to address the dissension between two prominent members of the church, Udia and Syntyche. We looked at that uh, last week. Now this surely, uh, to do that, was surely a difficult task for Paul. And surely as well a difficult task for, or a difficult thing for the Philippians themselves uh, to hear. Especially those two women. Uh, But the exhortation to the two women is sandwiched in between two sections that are more positive in nature. Certainly that was a more negative thing to have to talk about, uh, this division between these two women. But it's surrounded by things that are quite positive. In verse 1, Paul began by heaping sincere affirmations of love toward the church. He said, you are my joy, my crown, my beloved. And so that's how he began. That was right before his entreaties to the two women. He includes there a command to stand firm in the Lord 
in the Lord. But again, he calls them my joy, my, my crown, the ones I love. And then he gives, of course, the exhortation to the two women who are in a disagreement with one another. And he asks a third party to help them in this. And now he immediately follows that exhortation to those women with this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Quite positive. Would you not agree? A very positive statement and command. Rejoice in the Lord. Have joy. And then after this, we have a lesson on anxiety, peace, and prayer. And so he gives these very encouraging lessons on, on prayer and peace that um, hopefully when we come to them will encourage us as it did the Philippians in their day. It seems that the hope here is that all of these positive statements about joy, peace, prayer, being Paul's beloved, his joy and crown, it seems that all of this would help reinforce and encourage not only the two women at odds with one another, but hopefully all of this would reinforce and encourage the whole body to be unified. These two women were not unified. And that is what Paul, throughout the rest of the letter, was hoping to see in this church, that they would become more unified. And what better way to do that or to encourage that than by giving them encouraging words rather than coming down and slamming his apostolic authority over their heads. Rather, he gives them a load full of encouraging and loving words in this section. And so that seems to be the hope for Paul here, that these encouraging words, these loving words, this mention of gladness and joy and peace and prayer and being loved would encourage them to be further unified. Paul returns here to a prominent theme in this letter, and that, the, that is the theme of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. Gladness, joy, rejoicing, they are mentioned in this short letter over a, over a dozen times, close to 20, actually. The two references in this verse, number 14 and 15, in terms of the count, that's my count, so probably not very accurate, but somewhere in that range. That is how many times he's mentioned joy and rejoicing in this letter. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Now joy for the Christian is a permanent reality. Joy is a permanent reality for you and I as Christians. It is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And so it never goes away. We may not always feel like it's there, but it is a permanent reality for Christians. And because it is joy in the Spirit, it is a joy that's associated with the eternal joy that is to come when Jesus returns. A joy that we have yet to experience today. We experience on some level today with the Holy Spirit in union with Christ, but the way in which we'll experience it then it's not yet, we've not yet seen that. We've not yet had that. That will come when Jesus returns. In fact, in fact, Paul throws in a reference to that eternal joy that is coming. In verse 5, he says, The Lord is at hand. He is near. He's coming. Then, when he comes, our joy will be complete. It will be only joy. No more pain. When Jesus comes again. 
No more interference with the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, the Lord is at hand, but he's not yet here. Then our joy will be complete. The strife and the contention and the heartache that we experience now will be permanently behind us. Thus, this joy that Paul speaks of here is not merely temporary happiness. That is not what Paul is talking about. It's not temporary happiness that we have when things go our way, which is certainly a good thing to have. We are happy at times when things go our way, and when they don't, we're not very happy. Things make us sad. Even unbelievers experience happiness. They experience this type of temporary happiness at times. But that is not joy. Joy is neither, super, is neither a superficial smile, nor is it fake happiness. It is not fake happiness that pretends that nothing hurts. That is a superficial happiness, even coming from Christians. It is not us pretending that nothing can touch us. We're always happy. Nothing can bring us pain. That's not at all true. Any one of us can attest to the fact that we feel pain as Christians in this life. As Christians, we do experience things that are sorrowful, that make us hurt in the soul, in the heart, in the mind, in our bodies. We are not dismissing that when we think about joy. In fact, Paul had just confessed that he had tears in his eyes when he thought about the enemies of the cross. He suffered as a Christian. He suffered as an apostle who was full of joy and couldn't help but talk about joy in this letter. And yet, here he is talking about the tears that flow from his eyes. He, he felt pain. We feel pain. No doubt that Udia and Syntyche were each feeling pain on some level as a result of their disagreement. And so it's not, joy does not mean, when we talk about joy from Scripture, we not, do not mean to say that Every Christian needs to be happy all the time or put on a happy face. That is not at all what we're talking about. It's not fun to be at odds with another Christian, especially someone very close to you. This certainly must have caused these two women pain. In these moments, our happiness goes down for a while. But joy, friends, spirit-fueled rejoicing in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, is continual. It can be tapped into, regardless of the circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. Even when we feel pain. Even when we're in a disagreement that causes us pain, as these two women were. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul looks to the future as well. He wants the Philippians to have joy now, regardless of what's happening within them or around them, but he looks to the future as well. Again, I will say rejoice, meaning today rejoice, and then whatever comes upon you in the future, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Looking also to the future, whatever the Lord brings to your doorstep, you can and still are able to have joy. In other words, Philippians, this is what Paul was saying, in other words, Philippians, this is an ongoing command to you. Rejoice in the Lord. 
He said this before in chapter 3, at the beginning of that chapter, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord, friends, is something that we can do as Christians. It, it's expected. Paul assumes that this is something that the Philippians can actually experience, and that is joy in the Lord, regardless, again, regardless of the circumstances. Nevertheless, rejoicing in the Lord is something that we continually have to work on. It doesn't just happen. It, it's not just automatic. It is continual. It's, it's, as one writer put it, it's the firm deck on which we all stand is eternal joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's invincible because it's in the Lord. Nevertheless, though, it's something that we do have to work on. If it was automatic to us, then these repeated commands wouldn't make any sense. Why does Paul keep going back to this? Why does he even have, even have to say this if it's not something that we intentionally have to work on as Christian? Rejoice in the Lord. In order to rejoice in the Lord, we have to think about the Lord. So we're, we have to think about how do we do this? Well, in order to rejoice in the Lord, we have to think about him. We have to truly think about what the Lord has done for us. We have to think about who he is. Not only what he's done for us, but who he is. Who is this Lord that has done what Scripture says he has done for us? And we have to think about what he does for us today and what he will do for us in the future. And so that's one way in which we know, we know joy in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. We have to work at this, to think about the Lord, to think about what he has done, what he continues to do today, and what he will do in the future. If we think about it like this, then it's not surprising that Paul follows up the command to rejoice in the Lord with an exhortation to pray. In everything, make your request known to God. That's one way in which we draw near to the Lord and we think about him. We put, give our minds to him. We give our words to him. That is one way in which we can have joy, no matter what may be going on in our lives. In the midst of this, Paul also mentions in the next section about prayer, he also mentions the hearts and the minds of believers. And so we are to guard our minds, guard our hearts. We are to think about, and we'll look at this, Lord willing, at another time. We are to think about what is pure, what is holy, what is commendable, what is lovely. And so this is, these, are one of, these are ways in which we can work on having joy in the Lord. As we give our minds to the Lord, we think about him. In order to fight against our lack of joy, if that is the case with us, in order to fight against our lack of joy in the Lord, we have to think about the Lord. We have to give our hearts to the Lord more and more. Now that is something that we all need to work on, or can work on, regardless of what is happening. Now, this is difficult for us, is it not? It's not easy. Again, the commands wouldn't make sense if it was automatic, if it was just so easy to do as a Christian. Especially in a city like Austin, Texas, it can be quite difficult to do these things. Tasks that should normally take about 15 minutes if you look at the distance from one place to another, they take an hour and a half sometimes because of all the driving, because of the traffic. You look on the map and you're like, I just need to go right here. Why can't I just get there? 
It takes forever just to get one place and it takes forever to get back. And so it's not easy to live here all the time. It's not easy to live in a city like this. We also live in Austin, Texas, a city which is expensive. It's expensive to live here, which means we have to work. We have to work hard. We have to work long hours at times just to keep the house going, just to keep a roof over our heads. And that's good. That's what we're supposed to do. And so we say to ourselves, in the midst of all this, living in a city like this, I'm too busy to rejoice in the Lord. I've got too much on my plate. It's too busy. I'm, I'm too important to rejoice in the Lord. I'm too busy to think about the Lord and rejoice in him. Now, of course, we don't want to push this too far. If you don't work, you don't eat. You shouldn't quit your job just to think about the Lord. Right? You need to work. We've got to work to keep the, heads, the roof over our heads so we can think about the Lord, so we're not having to think about all of these other things. So, yes, work hard, but there's a limit, right? The original command to Adam and Eve in the garden was to work, to be fruitful, to multiply. And so we have to do this. We do this. We, we do this, but we must work unto the Lord. Our minds and our hearts ultimately belong to him. They belong to him. We have work. We have blessings because of him. He gave, him, he gave those things to us. And so we can still think about him. We can still think about what he does for us in a city like Austin, Texas, even though it is quite difficult to live in a place like this. Our minds and our, heart, our hearts ultimately belong to the Lord. They're his. For Udia and Syntyche, one or both of them might have been thinking at this time, I don't have time to rejoice in the Lord because I am too upset with the other person. I don't have time to rejoice in the Lord because look what she's doing. That might have been something that they were struggling with. I don't want to rejoice in the Lord. I want the Lord to show that other person that they are wrong, that I'm right. When that happens, well, then I can rejoice in the Lord. Then maybe I'll start to think about the Lord and what he's done for me and what he will do for me. You see how this works out in the, in the activity of the mind. It could have been happening for these two women. Where is the person's heart and mind if they are thinking like this? Their hearts and their thoughts are set on this, really, what I want, what I need, what I want to see happen. Is there joy in that? Is there much rejoicing to be had in that, if that is all you think about? What I want, what I need, what I want to see happen in other people. You can see how that kind of thinking doesn't invite joy into our lives, but actually pushes it further and further away. Now, friends, as a Christian, there's very little joy in that. Rather, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, always. Now, mention of the Lord in verse 4 and again in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. And another mention of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in verse 7, it reminds us of something. It reminds us of the question, who is the Lord? He is our Savior. The Lord is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. God is our Savior. He, Jesus was 
divided. He was crucified to make us one, to bring unity within people who otherwise would not have known it. He tore down the dividing wall. His body was crucified so that we might be one in that body, unified in the Lord. We are part of his one body. And so our fundamental identity is found in the Lord. That is who we are. This means that the rejoicing in the Lord is not merely a private rejoicing. Though this certainly is part of it. It should be a part of it. We, we individually fight against our own selfish impulses. What we just talked about, thinking only about what we want, only about what we think we need from others. We fight against that, those, those selfish impulses that, that push thinking about the Lord away. That's definitely something that we do individually. And as we fight against that individually, yes, we invite joy into our lives. But that is not all that there is to this joy that Paul speaks of here. The command to rejoice is plural. Rejoice in the Lord always, all of you. Every single one of you together. Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians, all of you, rejoice in the Lord. The church here at Providence, all of you, rejoice in the Lord together. This is a joy, again, that is communal, that is shared with others. Let me put it this way. As believers in Christ, we are called to think about the Lord. We are called to give our hearts to him, to pray to him, to contemplate who he is, to think about what he has done for us, to contemplate the joys coming when he, when he comes again. He is near. The Lord is at hand. We are to think about this. And we should do this privately, yes, but at the very least, corporately, in worship, together, as much as we are able. That is where we can really do this and have time to do this. Now think about this. As busy as we all are in this city, a city like Austin, with our family, with our work responsibilities, with our church responsibilities, with our home responsibilities, and all the other things that you're, we're a part of in this life, Sunday mornings and or Sunday evenings in worship in this building, and if not in this building, somewhere else in worship, this is the place, here. Here is the place where we can all slow down and stop and think about the Lord together to rejoice in him. It's the one place where we can actually set aside all those other things that we have to think about throughout the week. And so here, right here, is one place where we can go about cultivating the joy that Paul speaks of here in our lives together. This is where we gather to rejoice in the Lord. Here's where we are able and have the privilege to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And so we do this, friends. Continue to do this as we are able. Think about and rejoice in the Lord now together. But this contemplation of the Lord and his mercy publicly and privately that stirs up our joy, it should, friends, influence how we live with others and how we love others. If the joy that you experience in worship corporately is not having an effect on the way in which you love people next to you and you love others that you come into contact with and something is definitely missing. We cannot, as God's people, have this, heed this command properly, rejoice in the Lord, while at the same time isolating ourselves from one another, distancing ourselves from other Christians. That's what these two women were doing. 
They, they seem to be pushing each other farther and farther away. There's no joy in that. They can have joy and worship together for sure, but it is a joy that extends out from that into our relationships with one another all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul makes this clear here in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to every, everyone. Reasonableness, friends, is gentleness. The opposite of this would be exaction, being demanding. This attitude is selfish. It's self-centered. It says, I want this. And if I don't get this, I'm going to let everyone around me know that I haven't gotten yet gotten what I want. That's exaction. That's demand. This is where Udia and Syntyche were on some level. The stubbornness from both of them was making itself known in the church. And what needed to happen was that one or both of them, as she focused more on joy in the Lord, would be able to give up her rights and be able to love her sister a little bit better. And so that they could come to an agreement. Either one of them or both of them should have been doing this. Joy in the Lord, friends, pushes us out toward others, not away from them. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. It's coupled with rejoicing. This joy in the Lord pushes you out towards others in a certain manner, too, with gentleness. Rejoice and let your gentleness be known to everyone. Now, isn't that what we should be after, friends? As Christians, we should be after joy in the Lord, a consistent rejoicing in the Lord, a consistent thinking about the Lord so that we might have this joy and know this joy. And having this joy and have a joy that drives us toward others in love, not away from them. Thinking that all the time we need to hang on to all of our rights. That is, that is not what Scripture calls Christians to do. In fact, Scripture calls us to give up our rights. We looked at that last time. And there's joy in that. Rejoice in the Lord. Think about him. Give up your rights for the sake of your neighbor. There, there you will find joy. There you can rejoice in the Lord. In fact, this is what Jesus did. This is exactly what Jesus did. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy that Christ had in the Spirit in doing his Father's will, led him to the cross. It led him to the cross, the place where the Son of God gave up his rights for you, for me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be made known. Do you see how the thinking and the doing, loving, all come together there? What we do here, corporately, rejoicing in the Lord, what we do with our minds, privately thinking about him, should have an effect on the way in which we're gentle with one another. We love each other. Let your gentleness be made known to everyone. Jesus died on the cross for us. He gave up his rights for the joy that was set before him. And then he comes to harden sinners like us who rebelled against him violently. We rejected him. We didn't want anything to do with him. We would rather see his light snuffed out if we could really have our way in our natural self. That's who we are, friends. 
We don't want anything to do with him. And he comes to people like that, hardened sinners who don't want anything to do with him. And what does he do? He's gentle with us. He calls us to himself. Come, believe in me. Drink from the fountain of living waters. Come and have life. This is where we get, this is, this is where we learn how to do this. It's from Jesus Christ himself, to rejoice in the Lord always. And so, friends, and to be gentle with one another. And so, friends, let's try to do this. Let's try to have this type of thing become infectious in our families, in our church. Joy in the Lord and gentleness with one another. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Let's pray together, friends.